If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we're going to continue our study through this great book and learn some more today about how to spot false teachers. In my 21 years of being a Christian, I have heard some very strange doctrines, some real theological whoppers, some uh, doctrines that um, really would uh, be described as quite mutant and uh, distorted. And you might wonder, where, where do doctrines like this come from? I mean, where do people get things um, like that? You know, where in the Bible does it say we are to baptize infants? You ever thought about that? I mean, you know, can you go to a verse that finds that? I mean, search high and low, it's not in there. Where do you find the doctrine of sinless perfection? Well, the Bible says that anyone who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Where do you find the doctrine of the sinlessness of Mary? The scriptures say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not even one. Where do you find the doctrine that says Jesus and Satan are brothers? You don't find these things in the Word of God. They come from the fertile imaginations of men who are mere fiction writers in their mind. Paul describes them as having visions inflated without cause by their fleshly minds. Last week we learned that Paul urged Timothy to stay on at Ephesus for a very important reason, that he was to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths or endless genealogies. That word is a very strong word to instruct them, to command them, to insist and prescribe that they don't do that. Obviously, in Paul's or Timothy's ministry, after Paul left, some men started arising within the church or coming in from without and we're, we're introducing destructive heresies into the church at Ephesus. And Paul knew that all these little false doctrines, which always start small, mind you, you know, people don't come in and say, oh, by the way, today we're just going to pitch the deity of Christ this morning. No, doctrines usually come in slow. Satan is very shrewd. He is wise. He, he introduces false doctrine in very imperceptible hair-width degrees, like grains of arsenic in your food, so that you eat them slowly, and pretty soon you get weaker and weaker, and then suddenly you drop dead. And that is what was happening here at Ephesus. The strange doctrines, the myths, the endless genealogies, which were producing only speculation, not furthering the work or administration of God, were causing problems in Ephesus. And these doctrines, which have no footing in the scriptures, just produce arguments. They're, They're divisions and factions. They're satanic diversions. So the church will end up absorbing all of their thought and time and putting all this mental energy into things that are not, are worthless, are fruitless. 
And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you stay on at Ephesus and you instruct these certain men. Obviously, there were men who were probably still in the church that Paul hoped would be spared. So he says certain men, doesn't name them, not that he was scared to name men because the end of the chapter, he names Hymenaeus and Alexander. They must have gone over the cliff totally. And so he says, instruct them not to teach this false doctrine. And then when he gets to the text that we were going to look at today, he addresses three important things that you should come away with today. First, false teachers have a different goal. Secondly, false teachers produce fruitless discussion. And third, false teachers are self-deceived. Let me just read verses 3 through 11, and then we'll begin in verse 5. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they have, do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, I just want to make a comment here before we get into the text that Paul, in verse 5, is not departing from the subject of false teachers. I mean, when I read verse 5 and it says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith, Paul is not saying, oh, enough of that false teaching stuff. Let's talk about something more positive. No, he is making a contrast For us, between what true biblical preaching produces so that you and I can spot what is false. That is why he puts this in here. That is why at the beginning of the census says, but a contrast. Contrary to the myths and endless genealogies and strange doctrines which give rise to speculation and don't further the administration of God... But the goal of our instruction, he says, is love. Love. That is the whole purpose of what we do as Christianity, in Christianity, is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, isn't that what happened when the the man came up to Jesus, the the expert in the law, and thought he was going to trick Jesus and said, So, which is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He said, on these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. Now, 
If there was ever a word that has been raped by our society, it is the word love. I mean, what is love, anyways? I mean, think about it. What in the world is love? You know, we see commercials that say, you know, oh, um, you know, uh, put a little love away for when you retire. We hear people say, oh, I love pizza. I love shopping. I love my dog. It's like, what is that? People go, oh, yes, well, I love this person. Then they divorce them. You can find people who love just about anything. And see, this whole worldly definition of love has kind of smothered and crushed and covered over the true biblical definition of love. And so Christians in our day and age who are commanded, the first and foremost, to love God and to love each other, don't even know how to do that because if you don't know what love is, you don't know how to obey the two commands that Jesus said hang the law on the prophets. And First John reiterates the same thing. You know, gives the 11th commandment. So love your neighbor as yourself. Tragically, when people don't know what love is, they oftentimes fight against those who do know. When somebody is really loving another person, they attack that person because they are not being loving, because they are fighting for a worldly definition of love, and then the person who is doing biblical love, they attack them because they say they aren't loving. And this causes all kinds of problems in the church. So the first thing we're going to do this morning is talk about love and get that one settled so we can know what Paul is talking about as the goal of our instruction, the telos, the, the, the end of instruction is what he's saying here. Now in the Greek language, which is more precise than the English language, there is three different kinds of love. There is eros love, which is a sensual love, an erotic love. There's a Greek god, eros. It is the the love that you see in the fertility cults of just pagan orgies. That word is not found in the New Testament. Second, there is phileo love, a friendship love or brotherly love. Phileo is like, you know, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's It's the kind of love you have in a deep friendship, like David and Jonathan, let's say. And third, there is a love called agape love. This is the love that God has for us. It's the most common form in the New Testament, and it's kind of particular to the New Testament. It is that love that God so loved the world kind of love. It is the love that we are called to love one another with. It is a selfless, sacrificial unconditional kind of love which always does what is best for the other person. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I want to show you this passage which we've all looked at probably before. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 where Paul in chapter 12 is speaking of spiritual gifts. In chapter 13 he's speaking of the necessity of using spiritual gifts in love and he stops and actually defines agape love for us. And I want you to notice, is just, just watch this as we read, and I'll make a few comments, what Paul says true biblical agape love is, the kind of love we are to show to one another in God. Paul says, love is patient. 
Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, here Paul defines this agape love. And every part of the definition relates to an action. Search high and low in this list. There are no feelings. There are no emotions. There isn't any pizza mentioned. There isn't any commodities here. There isn't any passions, any desires. There are actions listed here that we do towards other people. This is what love is. Positively, if you were to group all the positive parts mentioned here, he says love is patient, kind, rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. Negatively, love is not jealous, not arrogant, or provoked, does not brag, act unbecomingly, seek its own, take into account wrong suffered, or rejoice in unrighteousness. But every one of these things is an action. And when you love somebody, you are acting towards them in a certain way. When you love God, you are acting towards God in a certain way. You are not feeling towards them in a certain way. That is a worldly definition. We are acting. Now, this does not mean that we do not have feelings. It does not mean that if you act towards somebody in the right way, you'll be automatons. But don't confuse emotions and feeling good or warm and fuzzy with loving the way the Bible says love is. Paul then explains that love flows out of a heart that has three characteristics. Notice what he says. The goal of our instruction is love, first and foremost, from a pure heart. The heart is your thoughts, is intentions, it is uh, your emotions, All that you are as a person, love flows from all of your mental, non-physical faculties, which are pure, which means they don't have any defilement. They aren't corrupted by sin. They aren't tainted by selfish motives. Love must flow from a pure heart. You know, you have uh, water here in Burbank. You fill it up in a cup and you look and it's got things in there. That is not pure water. I mean, there are streams in Idaho that uh, are way, way more clear than water. You know, and it's flowing all over these dirty rocks. I don't know how it is. I don't know what's in those pipes, but there's something scary in there. Listen to how Peter described love and the relationship of love to the Word of God in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Just listen. Peter says this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. Here Peter describes some important things. 
that true love, that biblical love comes from a birth from the word of God and submission or obedience to the word of God. It is only when you submit to the word of God and you line yourself up with the word of God that you can show true, genuine, sincere love. That is how we fervently love one another, by submitting to the word of God. I have people come up to me with concerns about my teaching saying, you know, you just seem so unloving. I mean, you know, everything you talk about is the word this or the word that or, you know, obey this or obey that. As if somehow obedience and truth were antithetical, were mutually exclusive to love. Listen, love is the submission of a person's will to the truth of God's word. That's what love is. It is not a feeling. It is not emotion. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. There is no other way to show love to God than to keep God's commandments. And we're going to look at this in detail next week as we get to the place of the rightful use of God's law. Truth purifies your soul. It saves you, producing in you a sincere love, a desire to act right towards other people and towards God. Error, on the other hand, produces fruitless discussion, um, selfish motives, self-serving motives, and ungodly behavior. Now, the second attribute here is not only does love flow from this pure heart, also from a sincere or a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's look at good conscience first. A conscience is this little internal mechanism that God has given us. It is uh, a very fine instrument that God has placed within our hearts, which tells us when things are good or things are bad. The conscience must be always adjusted by the truth of God's word so that it functions correctly. If you are not always putting God's word into your heart, then the Holy Spirit doesn't tune your conscience so that it works right. It's kind of like a smoke alarm. You know, you have this smoke alarm, and when it's tuned right, it doesn't go off unless your house is burning. But if it's not adjusted correctly, then, you know, when you're cooking some oatmeal on the stove, the thing goes off. It starts making all this racket. I was like, well, hey, 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 you know, it's just some steam from the oatmeal. There's no, the house is not burning. But see, your conscience is so critical that the scriptures talk of it over and over. And it's interesting to do a study of the New Testament. I looked up every occurrence of conscience. It was really fascinating. And I discovered that there are three general categories of consciences in the New Testament. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let me just list these for you quickly so you can see a little bit of what the scriptures teach as a whole. First, good conscience. Under the category of good conscience, you would have a blameless conscience, a conscience that you cannot accuse, which stands before God, and God cannot even accuse you. It is blameless before God, a blameless conscience. The New Testament also speaks of a honest conscience. This is a conscience which may have sinned, which may have been blown it, but it's honest. It's 
I blew it. You know, it's, it's honest before God. That is another type of good conscience, uh, apart from a deceptive or lying conscience. And then there is a clear conscience, a conscience which just, there isn't anything. It's not, the alarm isn't going off. It's not saying you've blown it, stir away, watch out. It's just clear. Then there is a perfect conscience mentioned in the Bible, a perfect conscience, and that is self-explanatory. And then a cleansed conscience, which is encouraging because it tells us that sometimes we have a conscience which is defiled, but that God is able to cleanse it and make it clean again. Then we move to the category of bad consciences. These would be the weak conscience, the brother who thinks all these things are sin when they are not. A lot of times weak conscienced people turn into legalists because, oh no, you can't watch TV, you can't go to the movies, you can never swim with people of the opposite sex. You know, you have people who add, they start adding all of these rules. Why? Because their conscience is weak, because their alarm goes off on so many things because they haven't programmed it with the scriptures that that when they go out in the world, they're just constantly reacting. I mean, their alarm's going off all the time because their conscience is weak, the battery's going dead, and you know how they chirp when they do that. (laughs) Then you have a wounded conscience. This is the fire alarm that's in the ceiling that gets actually hit really hard with a hammer. And it may be working, but it doesn't go off very loud or it's not very sensitive. It's broken. It may be able to be repaired, but it is a wounded conscience. Then there is this defiled conscience. This is the one that's just full of dust, just full of trash. You know, this is the person who... You know, is walking with the Lord and then they go home and watch a bunch of trashy TV and lust over a bunch of things they shouldn't and read a bunch of stuff they shouldn't and talk about a bunch of stuff they shouldn't. And it's like getting your spoke alarm and taking it out to your planter and just filling the thing full of dirt and screwing it back up to the ceiling. Well, is it going to work? Probably not. I mean, you have to really get that baby heated up before it's going to go off. And that's what a defiled conscience is. Then there is the ugly consciences. Two of them mentioned. The first is an evil conscience. This would be a conscience that's just flat out wicked, flat out evil. Knows they're doing wrong and doesn't care. Is trying to lead people astray, destroy people, get revenge, whatever. And then the worst kind of conscience is the seared conscience. This is the conscience that is so scarred. It's the smoke alarm that's had the torch put to it and melted down. It will never work again. These people are just charred, seared in their conscience. They can sin and it doesn't even faze them. But the most, kind, the most common kind of conscience is good conscience. It appears six times in the New Testament. And the good conscience is the conscience meticulously adjusted by the truth of God's word. Look down at verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1. Notice what it says there. Timothy says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Now, this is great because in verse 19, he's going to tell us more about what it means to fight the good fight. Keeping faith. Faith in what? 
in God according to his word, and a good conscience which can only be maintained under constant adjustment of the word of God, which some, he says, have rejected a good conscience, a, a, a faith, the faith, the faith of the scriptures in God according to his word, and suffer, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. These people are kind of like the lighthouse who has its light popped out. And when the ship comes, they don't see the warning. Why? Because they defiled their conscience, and it's no longer a good conscience. It's a broken, defiled, evil, scarred, whatever you want to call it, conscience. And so they wreck their faith. They shipwreck their faith on the rocks of error. Now, notice that it is a fight for the truth. That is what he's talking about in the whole context, a fight for the truth, keeping faith in a good conscience. Look over at 1 Timothy 4.2. We'll get here next fall or whenever. But notice, as he's talking about apostates in the last times, another section, different context, just about false teachers. And notice how he describes these apostates in verse 2 of chapter 4. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You can just see that iron stuck into the fire, heated up red hot, and laid upon their conscience and just sear it so it never works again. That's how these apostates are described. Titus and Titus 1.15, speaking of false teachers and just what happens when an unbeliever goes against the truth, he says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience is defiled. You take a smoke alarm, you open it up, you snip a couple things out of there, just one thing, one wire, one little diode, one little capacitor, a little inductor, a little, any sort of little electrical thing in the circuit board, and they just cut it out of there. It's just one thing. And what happens? The alarm doesn't work anymore. And this is why error is so, so important to spot in the church, because once this error creeps into the minds of people, it turns their conscience from a good conscience to a defiled conscience. And then they don't see when bigger things are coming down the pike and they have consciences which accept more and more error and pretty soon the church has its lampstand taken away from it. So false teaching snips the wires of sound doctrine and hence defiles the conscience. So it is not clean, it is not blameless, it is not honest, pure, but evil. Now third and finally, love, according to the text, flows from a sincere faith. The word sincere literally means non-hypocritical. It is from the Greek word anhupokritas, which is... Um, the negative of hypocritas, the word we get hypocritical from, two-faced, the actor. And it means sincere. 
The word is not always or the word is always found in relationship to love in the New Testament. Very interesting. You find this word sincere. You do a word study on it. Go to any context in the New Testament, and you will always find it in the context of love. Why? Because if you have evil motives, if you have selfish intent, if you're self-serving, if you're thinking of, oh boy, I hope that person notices me. Well, I'll buy a pew as long as I can have my name on it. So that every single person who sits there looks at the pew and says, oh, so-and-so bought this pew and gives glory to who? Whoever bought the pew. You must have a sincere faith And a sincere love. The two go together. Agape love is always sincere. The two are joined together. They're like Siamese twins joined at the hip. Every place in the New Testament you find sincere. It's always coupled with love. It is also interesting to note that all but one occurrence of the word sincere is found in the context of false teaching. Now why do you think that is? Because false teachers are not sincere. False teachers are teaching out of an insincerity. They either know that they're teaching lies, or they don't know that what they're teaching is lie. Either way, they can't be honest with themselves. They can't be sincere, because they're unsure. They teach things that are outside of the scriptures. And because of that, they have no sincerity. And that is why false teaching produces these rotten hearts and these wicked consciences and these fruitless and mere speculations because they deviate from what the scriptures teach. And so the first step in spotting false teachers and and what they do is to recognize that their teaching does not produce love, biblical love, self sacrificing service to God and others for their benefit. It produces discussions and wranglings and disputings about things that don't even matter. Secondly, false teachers produce this fruitless discussion. Now we saw this in the preceding context and he mentions it here again for the second time. Look at verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, that's it's the pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith that produces love, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. It seems these men in the Ephesians church rose up from the midst of other believers and they started throwing out their Jewish myths or their little endless genealogy things or their strange doctrines and the church was beginning to be steered off course. And you know... A lot of people wonder, you know, gosh, you know, do we have to be such hair splitters? I mean, do we have to be so picky? I mean, come on. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is the pilgrim who is on his journey to the celestial city. And he has been told by evangelists and learned by some really painful circumstances that he needs to stay on the straight and narrow, and hard way. And he loses his friend Faithful in Vanity Fair, and later on connects up with Hopeful as he leaves that city. And as he is going down this very straight but hard and right way, 
He comes to a place where there's a rather steep hill, but he can see a very soft, green, cozy path that seems to just go right around the mountain to where he wants to go. And he's thinking to himself, well, look at, I mean, this is straight and this is just a, this seems to like just barely veer off the path. It's so nice over here. People won't be offended over here. They won't feel guilty over here. They won't be confronted with their sin over here. Whatever. And so him and Christian and Hopeful decide to go off on this path. They get a little tired. They fall asleep only to find out that things have become very dark and bad. And giant despair grabs them, takes them to his dungeon and pitches them into the dungeon. And then he begins to beat them every day. He beats them within an inch of their life every day. And then he comes and he gives them instruments so they can kill themselves. Because he doesn't want to kill them. He wants them to just despair so terribly that they kill themselves. And they're in there fretting. They're in there worrying. going, Oh, why did we leave the straight but narrow way? Why did we just deviate a little bit? And it is not until, huh, something incredible happens. He remembers the promise. He has the scroll of promise, which is the word of God. Then he went as soon as he opens that up and lets them out and they're back on the right way. And it is not until they come back to the word of God that they are back on the right path. And this is a perfect illustration of what we're talking about in this text. These false teachers come in. They don't do a 90 degree. They don't do a 180 degree. They come on a 1% deviation from the truth. Why? Because right now it's 1%, but get out there three years and you're five miles away from where the path is. And so he says... Look at verse 6. Some men straying from these sayings. The word straying means swerving, failing to perform up to its purpose. They wander off the trail and get into the black forest of false doctrine. And once they get lost in that forest of error, by definition, they have turned aside to fruitless discussion. By their deviation from the truth, they are now in the land of fruitless discussion. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, where Timothy goes into more detail describing what happens when the church deviates from sound doctrine. Notice what he says in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, a strange doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ... And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, love God, love your neighbor, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicion and constant friction between men of depraved minds deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Look down at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 6, where he closes the letter. Now, now notice the emphasis of this letter, and notice his parting words here. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. 
avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of, of what is falsely called knowledge, which some had professed and thus gone astray from the faith. We as a church need to be looking to spot false doctrine. Why? Because if we deviate from the path, we turn aside to fruitless discussion. Now, I want to make something clear here. Paul is not saying, don't talk about the Bible, don't discuss the Bible, don't argue about the Bible, don't search the scriptures and sharpen one another by the truths of God's word. He's not saying that. He's not saying, don't stand up for the scriptures, just just allow every fad and every doctrinal deviation that comes down the path, because, you know, we don't want to fall into the sin of uh, having controversial disputes and factions of men in between depraved minds. Notice in that context, he says, they're deprived of the truth. They're teaching strange doctrine. They don't even have the truth. He's talking about arguing about non-truth. He's not talking about fighting for the truth, which he advocates through all 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus to contend for, to guard, to retain, to do battle, to fight the good fight for the truth. People, truth is always controversial. Truth is an attack on the world. Whenever you teach a truth, you are basically telling the world, you're wrong. People, that is controversy. You you tell somebody, listen, the Bible teaches that life starts in the womb. We know this is true because of the laws of Leviticus. We know this is true because of the Psalms. We know this is true because people were said they were sinners in the womb, that they were called in the womb, that God gifted in the womb, that he assembled them in the womb. And murder is what abortion is. And see, people don't like that. Why? Because... It is a confrontation of what they believe. And is it controversial? You bet it is. All truth, by definition, is antithetical, which means when you say abortion is murder, then every other thing, by definition, is wrong. Anything that contradicts that is wrong. Truth creates that kind of antithesis and it confronts people. And yes, it is controversial. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about leaving the truth and arguing about things that are not even truth, that aren't even dressed in the scriptures. Now, all three pastoral epistles make that clear. But when you leave the path, Of true doctrine, you enter into fruitless discussion, and then you start arguing about things that are worthless. It's like eating celery. (laughs) You know, you can eat all the cereal. You just try and live off of celery for a month. We'll all come to your funeral. I mean, you can chew on it as much as you want. There's some fiber in there. That's about it. Fiber and water. That's it. And you will... You will starve yourself to death eating gobs and gobs of celery. And that's how false doctrine is. It takes the church away from what is nutritious, what is is, um, nourishing to their soul. And people are just chewing and chewing on the celery of false doctrine. They're wearing themselves out. They're all bloated from that which has no nutrition in it. And they eventually starve themselves to death. So the second way you can spot false teachers is that they teach things that produce celery chewing. 
false, fruitless, worthless, extra-biblical arguments. Third, false teachers are self-deceived. Look at verse 7. Paul continues, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This verse is very interesting because it reveals some of the attitudes and motives common in false teachers. He gives us three general characteristics. First, wanting to be teachers of the law. This tells us they have ambition, carnal ambition, to be seen as the teacher. They want to be the teacher. They want to have power. They want to have recognition. Last night we had the steering committee over to our house and Lou was telling the story about a guy who showed up at the church who was God's gift to the church, you know. He shows up and, yeah, I just want you to know, uh, you guys need any help uh, teaching any of these things? I've got Bible studies already prepared. You know, I've taught all these kind of classes. Man, I know my Bible forwards and backwards. And if you don't believe me, just ask me. And he says, this guy comes into the church, and they're kind of watching him and watching him. You know, and you go, hey, you know, listen, man, you know, I notice that sometimes, you know, being a fireman, you, uh, you know, you uh, have to work out. I'll tell you what, I'll take your spot anytime you want. Just like, I, I got somebody to fill it out. But I just want you to know, I'm out of here for you, man. I can handle it, no problem. So he goes to the other guy who fills in and says, you know, I just want you to know, you know, you, you know we don't have to have Lou teach here. I can teach. So they're thinking, hmm, this is interesting. So they give the guy, like, one little opportunity to teach. He spends the whole time bragging about how much he knows. Out of here. <laughs> Secondly, not only do they have this great desire to be up front and to have power and to be seen as an authority of the law. Secondly, even though they do not understand what they are saying, to stop there. Here's their problem. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even know what they're talking about. They're pumping from a dry well. They don't even know what the Bible says. They have never really studied the scriptures or any sort of systematically um, gone through the Bible to find out what the Bible as a whole teaches. They're kind of like my air compressor. It's really loud, but only air comes out. And you can always tell a false teacher because when you start talking to them, they raise their voice. Why? Because they don't know what they're talking, but they can shout louder. I can't tell you how many times people have had a problem with certain things that other people have said, and then they come to me and they say, you know, uh, I was hearing so-and-so, and do you know what he said? It's like, no, I do not know what he said. And then they tell me this really bizarre thing. And it's like, they said that? Really? So, yeah, would well, you ask them where? Well, I tried to ask them, and all he did was talk louder and restate. So when I asked him again, he switched the subjects. Why do they do that? Because they can't show you. Show me infant baptism in the Bible. Um, you know, the church has always practiced infant baptism. You know, the Reformers believed in infant baptism. Yeah, show me here um, where infant baptism is in the Bible. You know, the Catholic Church has taught infant baptism for nearly 2,000 years. Could you show me in the Bible where infant baptism is? See, that's what they do. 
listen, are you going against orthodoxy? Could you show me in the Bible? It's how it is. Show me in the Bible. I want to see it. I want to see in the scriptures where it teaches that. That's what we're called to do. Call people to show us from the scriptures. Secondly, the Bible is often taken as one verse teaches everything. This is something common in false teachers. They get their little favorite verse. They get their little tweaky verse, and they use it, rip it out of context, and then they build their whole system on this one tortured text. This is very dangerous. The Bible does not teach what one verse teaches especially one verse taken out of context. The Bible teaches what every single verse in the Bible which addresses that specific doctrine teaches as a whole. That's what the Bible teaches. And so often false teachers, because they don't know the whole Bible, just camp on one little text and because they're telling people who may not know the whole Bible... They deceive people because the person says there, well, it just, it says that Moses used to speak to God face to face, so I guess maybe Joseph Smith did speak to God. But they don't read the next verses where God tells Moses, no man can see my face and live, and they never notice that the text says he used to speak to God, not see God. Face to face. There's a difference. When Moses said, show me thy glory, he stuck him in the crack of a rock, put his hand over him, and went by, and Moses was able to see a little bit of the afterglow and lit up like a light bulb for weeks. <laughs> you hear people say things like, I don't believe in predestination. Oh, really? So what do you do with all the verses that say God predestined us? Well, and then they quote all of these passages which are universal calls to salvation, but they never really deal with the passages which say we have been predestined. That as many as were appointed to eternal life believed that he predestined us to the adoption of sons. It's like, listen, the Bible isn't contradicting itself. You've got to look at everything the scriptures teach. And they teach predestination. Now, if you don't understand that, that's okay. But at least don't just practice denial and just kind of skip over those verses because they're uncomfortable. They kind of destroy my theological system. Third, it says, or matters about which they make confident assertions. The third characteristic of false teachers is that they are very confident about what they teach. They are sure of themselves. They teach and preach lies with boldness. And this is obvious, false teachers are very sure of themselves. I mean, they've got their proof text, they've got their historical thing, they've got their survey that somebody showed them in the world. They're anchored somewhere, and they teach and preach with, with conviction and passion. Otherwise, you know, I mean, do you think Jim Jones would have led all those people to the slaughter if he would have said, well, people, I'm, I'm, really, not, I'm really not sure about what I'm doing. I, you know, I mean, you can follow me if you want to. I mean, I, you know, I'm just... I mean, the Kool-Aid will taste good. (laughs) No. He gets up there and he preaches and teaches with certainty. And he doesn't tell people, study your Bible. 
Look at your Bible. Scour the Bible and find out to make sure that everything I'm saying is true. It's like, no, listen, don't talk to anybody else. Don't believe anybody else. You stay away from all these other people. Keep yourself isolated from anybody who might know something different. Do not go out. Do not question me. You just submit to me. You do what I say. You follow me. Just everybody else is false. Everybody else is wrong. That's the typical mode of false teachers. They get angry when you question them. That is the first just, I mean, that is like the number one red light. You talk to somebody and say, hey, you know, show me where this is in the Bible. You know, you think you're so self-righteous. It's like, what? (laughs) What was that? I mean, when you get that, you just run from them. Run! (laughs) Secondly, they're unwilling to have their teaching examined by the truth of God's word. Not only if you question them, but if you say, let's look at your scripture that you're teaching us within its context, they freak out. I mean, I have had people teach me things, you know, it's like, well, you know, I just want you to know I died and came back to life again. Oh, really? Let's look over here in Hebrews. It says this is appointed for man to die once. Now, let's talk about that. Listen, you can't tell me what happened to me. You know, it's like, well, I'm not saying what happened. Let's just look at this verse here. It's appointed for men to die once. Now, how many times are you going to die? Third, when you try to sit down and talk to them about the scriptures and start to look at the details... They do one of two things. Usually, they either explode on you, they quote things outside the scriptures, or they run, and they don't come back. But you find out, oh, that guy's worshiping over at such and such a church now. It's like, good. Go away. So how can you spot false teachers? Their lives and the lives of those who except their teaching are not characterized by love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Their teaching takes people away from diligent, systematic study of God's word, but instead focuses on things gleaned from the world, gleaned from experience, gleaned from man's wisdom, emotions. They don't, don't, don't you become, you know, the letter kills. It's like, could you tell me the context of that verse, please? Well, no, but it does. <laughs> 